Let's start with Ezekiel chapter 38, uh, and we'll begin in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus saith the Lord, uh, the Lord God, the Lord Jehovah is the idea, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Now, right out of the gate, you know, uh, what we did on Sunday is explain who Gog and Magog is. Remember, Gog is a, it's a person, but it's a title, like, the, like a pharaoh or a czar or even a prince. Those are, those are titles of certain individuals, and that's this guy Gog. That's the title of the Magogites. Who are the Magogites? Well, we, we just kind of threw it out. They're basically the Russians and part of the former Soviet Union. That's kind of what we said on Sunday. But I wanna give you a little bit of the reason why, uh, because there, there will be people say, well, how do you know the, the Gog is the leader, the person uh, over Magog, the, the Russians or, the, or some of the states that were the former Soviet Union? Well, as it turns out, you have to kind of do some work. And, and one of the, the bits of work that's so rewarding on this, by the way, is when you uh, look at the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. Would you flip back there? Keep your finger here in Ezekiel 38 and go with me to Genesis chapter 10. Now, um, if you wanna kind of know um, uh, about the people groups of the Bible, uh, Genesis 10 is one to, to really, it's worth maybe a, a little deeper study in Genesis 10. It's called the Table of Nations. And it basically takes, uh, you know, the sons of Noah, and it shows kind of how the nations were built with the three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And not only, you know, who they were, but where they ended up kind of settling. And you can learn a ton by doing a little more of a study in, uh, in the Table of Nations. But let's just look at Genesis chapter 10, verse 1. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And unto them were, the, were sons born after the flood. Um, so, verse 2, the sons of Japheth, Gomer, and Magog, Madai, and Yavan, and Tubal, and Meshech, and Tyrus, and the sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, and Rephat, and Togarma. Any of those sound familiar? Many of those, those sons are listed in the, uh, you know, the Ezekiel 38 Gog-Magog prophecy. And so we know that many of those, not all of them, but many of those are the descendants of Japheth. And we know from biblical accounts where these people groups, the sons of Japheth, were, you know, became their own tribes, and then they all settled in various regions, and they, they, they kind of scattered. You know, in the antediluvian world, it seems that uh, during the, before Noah and before the flood, there was uh, a, a lot of population that sort of massed together. There was several scatterings in history of the world, uh, and one was right after the flood. It seemed like these nations kind of scattered after the flood. And then also, of course, the Tower of Babel was a huge scattering of nations. But, um, you know, if, if you go on, you verse four, the sons of Yevan, uh, uh, Elisha, and Tarshish, there's another name that comes up in Ezekiel 38. And then verse six, it moves on to the sons of Ham. So the so basically the sons of Yapeth or Japheth is verses two through five. And verses six all the way through verse 20 are the sons of Ham. And included with the sons of Ham is Put there in verse six, 
Um, and, uh, you know, Nimrod in verse eight, which is kind of an important Bible character if you, uh, if you wanted to kind of remember that. And there's other, um, other um, you know, important names there. But then in, in verse uh, 21, you've got Shem, uh, and, and his, he's the father of the children of Eber, which uh, is kind of interesting because it goes eventually to the uh, Hebrews, which is kind of a funny uh, part of that, but all this to say, this is the table of nations is kind of where it scatters the people all over the world, and you can know these groups, and these are the ancient names of of areas of the world that we have, you know, today. Then we have to kind of do the homework to figure out who are these people. Okay, so so back to uh, go back if you would uh, to Ezekiel thirty eight. The goal then is to say, well, Ezekiel thirty eight. Throughout this chapter, I'll show you tonight where the implication is this is toward the end of the world or the latter days. So we have to uh, try to figure out what are these nations as they relate to ancient Bible places? Who are they uh, as it relates today? And so you have to kind of do some work uh, in history. Gog, as I said, is the leader of Magog. You and I um, largely haven't heard of the Magogites because there's not a lot of history on them. I'll tell you why perhaps in a second. But we, we've, you, maybe you have heard of the Scythians. Some people say the Scythians, um, which was a Greek label for this same ancient tribe. The Megagites became the, the Scythians or the Scythians. And we know this from ancient historians. Um, there's three main ancient historians that are really helpful on this. The first one is Herodotus, the, um, the, the fifth century before Christ. Um, actually, Herodotus was right before Ezekiel's time, like, like just a, one generation before Ezekiel was Herodotus. So that when Herodotus, Herodotus talks about these ancient places, he, uh, he's one of our best out, outside of the Bible, extra biblical sources of who these nations are. Uh, you know, Herodotus was a historian, he was a Greek writer, but he's also a geographer, um, historian, all that stuff. But, but, um, but in his fourth book of history, that's what it's called, um, he, uh, he is quoted as mentioning Meshach and Tubal, who identify with the people, uh, it was an uh, ancient people group uh, from Meshach and Tubal called the uh, Sarmatians, the Sarmatians, and the Mushovites, uh, who lived in the ancient province of Pontus in northern Asia Minor. Now, this is what Herodotus tells us. Um, so he's telling us where Meshach and Tubal were, uh, along with Josephus. Uh, you hear me talk about Josephus. He was an ancient historian around the time of Christ. Now, why do you have to go to ancient historians? Because the, the closer they were to the actual events, the more accuracy we have. Um, and by the way, these, these guys over the centuries have proven to be accurate, uh, both archaeologically and otherwise, like in the other writings that have only confirmed some of the things they said about these places. But Josephus, who was a famous Hebrew historian that worked for the Romans in the first century, he points out in his book, Antiquities 1.6, that Muscovy and the uh, uh, Thobelites um, uh, were founded by Meshach and Tubal. So you, make, you connect these dots and that Magog you know, Josephus says, Magog was called the Scythians by the Greeks. This is what Josephus said about the Greeks, talking about Magog as the Scythians. Um, and they also were defined as setting um, uh, north of the Caucasus Mountains. Now, if you know where the Caucasus Mountains are, it kind of separates, um, you know, a major land part of Europe and, uh, and Asia and what have you. 
But um, along with Josephus and Herodotus, you have Pliny, uh, who noted the Roman writer, uh, he was a noted Roman writer early in the Christian era, he also linked the Scythians with the Magogites. Um, so basically, when you, and the reason I keep going to the Scythians, they're the ones that are clearly linked to what is today modern day Russians uh, and the, the Russian and many of those nations that are part of the former Soviet Union. So, so Scythians were the forebearers to what you and I know as the Russians. Are you guys with me so far? Now, uh, archaeologically uh, speaking, studies have you know, revealed that the Scythians um, populated most of Western Siberia during those times. They were a huge, huge area, huge group of people. Um, interesting, the reason why we don't know much about them is they had no alphabet. Uh, the Scythians had no writing at all. Um, nor did they have any coinage uh, even though other more modern nations had coins and writing, the Scythians did not. They were apparently the earliest tribe, so that, that's, they didn't have them writing or, or coins, but they, uh, according to history, and some historians argue that they were the first ones who mastered the use of horses um, and, uh, and became horsemen and started to use horsemen effect, horses effectively in warfare. They were one of the first ones to do that. Um, they were a warrior bunch of people. They were, they were known to be fierce. Um, and uh, there was a mindset that's very different kind of from our culture and modern culture, that the warrior himself was uh, a single unit, including his wife um, or wives um, and all of his horses. They were all part of him. They considered his horses and his wives just one unit. So when, a, when one of these men died in battle, the Scythians would put to death his wives and his horses and bury them all together with him. That was a part of their cultural heritage. So the wives would be very in, in, intent on saying, honey, uh, good luck, <laughs> hope, you, hope you win, because uh, uh, it would be really bad for them back in those days. Um, but that, that was the Scythians, that were the Magogites. Now, you heard me refer to on Sunday in the next, so we had Gog and Magog, and we, we mentioned, you know, Tubal, and Meshach. But did you notice I also mentioned Rosh? Did you guys remember me talking about Rosh and how it sounds like Russia? And that's why we, that some people say, well, you, you think it's Russia because it sounds like Rosh or Russia. And I said, that's not the case. Does anybody know um, why is the word Rosh in some of your translations there, but not in the King James? Uh, your King James doesn't say Rosh. Uh, it doesn't say it at all. In fact, it says, uh, it says, uh, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal uh, prophesied against him. Well, the word chief is the questionable word there. Um, and and we, we, we see as the, the name chief is sort of a description of who he is. But others say, no, it was a proper name of a place. It's not, it's, and, and the word Rosh is the word used there. Uh, Kyle and Delitch, maybe you guys know that their commentary. Kyle, who was a scholar of the ancient languages, he says that uh, this word chief in the King James is, should have been left Rosh as a proper name of a place. Um, now, again, I would argue that the word Rosh is not, that's not why we think it's Russia. It has more to do with their linkages to um, the, the Scythians and what have you. So uh, um, the German scholar, Kyle, uh, Kyle C.F. Kyle, uh, basically pointed out that the, the, the uh, grammatical analysis, the word chief, uh, should be properly translated as Rosh or Ross. How many guys it says chief in your Bibles? Raise your hands. 
How many of you have, says Rosh or Ross in your Bibles? Yeah, it's like 50-50. Um, and it's the way they translate. Uh, so he said that the Byzantine and the Arabic writers frequently mention people called the Ross that were dwelling in a country of Taurus and reckoned them part of the Scythian tribes as well, okay? So that's, it has nothing to do with Russia sounding like Rosh. Um, that's important because the critics like to make it, make it sound like, I've heard pastors go up and say, these pastors that think this is Russia, they see the word Rosh there and they say, oh, it must be the Russians. That's not accurate in, in, in uh, the way that came to that conclusion. It's a coincidence that it actually sounds similar to the Russian modern name. Now, Meshach, what's Meshach? Wilhelm Genesis, uh, or I should say Gensenius, uh, was a Hebrew scholar of about the 19th century. And he uh, developed a lexicon of the Hebrew language. A brilliant, brilliant guy. Uh, Gensenius points out that Meshach was a, the barbarous people known as the Mashki, uh, who dwelt in the Mashkian mountains. Uh, in his writings, he also linked the Mashki as the root from which the city of Moscow gets his name. So that one does kind of sound like it, it is, uh, as it turns out. Uh, Gesenius also highlighted the fact that Rosh, or Ross, refers to those dwelling north of the Taurus Mountains near the Volga River. So there's, there's geographical identifications that kind of point out who these people are. Uh, Rosh, Meshach, uh, Tubolsk, we talked about Tubolsk. Uh, Tubol was the son of Raphath, founder of the Taberini, a people dwelling on the Black Sea, west of the Mashki tribe. So these are all people up north of Israel, north of Turkey, in that region of what we would have called, you know, the Soviet Union back in the 80s. Um, now, um, something else is kind of interesting about these people groups, by the way, is um, at least four writers um, I've been able to find wrote prior to 1900. Uh, Bishop Louth of England wrote in 1710 that the Rosh were the Scythians and were Russian. Dr. John Cumming in London in 1864 and Reverend Walter Chamberlain in um, 1854 wrote over 100 years ago writing that the Magogites were, were with Russia. And so the reason that's kind of important is there's a long history of people uh, uh, aligning that concept. The reason I kind of harp on this is because there are people, and, and you kind of need to know this. Remember in eschatological views, there are people that have very different views uh, and um, and one of those groups are the amillennialists uh, and the preterists. Uh, now keep in mind, I believe those people are all saved and when they're raptured, they'll have to just change their eschatological notes. Uh, they, don't, they don't believe in the rapture. They don't believe in the literal millennial kingdom. That's what amillennialism, it means no millennium. They're actually saying there is no millennium, amillennialism, that's Catholics. And a lot of, uh, some of Protestant churches, a lot of the Presbyterians are amillennialists and they don't believe in the rapture. And they don't believe in the millennial kingdom. And so the way that they interpret all these Bible prophecies, because if you think about that, if you don't believe in the rapture, you don't believe in the tribulation period or the millennial kingdom, what do you do with Ezekiel 38 and the whole book of Daniel and the whole book of Revelation? What do you do with it? You say it's already happened in history. It's all already happened. Um, and, and they always ascribe these little local battles that happened to these, these events. Like for example, Matthew 24, Jesus, you know, the disciples say, hey, when's the end of the world? And Jesus explains the moon being turned to red and the sun darkened, the stars falling from the sky and like these cataclysmic global events. And they say, oh, that was the fall of Jerusalem. Matthew 24, Jesus was talking about AD 70 when the Romans crushed Jerusalem. Um, look at the, read Matthew 24 honestly and you tell me he's talking about just one city. 
Uh, that's not the context. He's talking about a global situation that's still yet in the future. Um, and uh, the same thing is true with Ezekiel 38. There's never been anything like what Ezekiel 38 lines up as happening in history. They just say, oh no, this stuff's already happened. And so they have to do some fancy tweaking of these people groups. And they, they'll say, well, this isn't really Russia and this isn't really Turkey or, or Iran. And so they have to kind of, it's, it's all figurative. It does, didn't really happen anyway. And that's, that's honestly how they shake this out. Now, in their defense, all millennialists and preterists, um, it made sense to try to figure out everything as being figurative 500 years ago. Now, why? Because um, the, the, the nation Israel didn't even exist and hadn't for 1,500 years. And so they, they all said, well, if Israel ceased to exist 1,500 years ago, this must be all figurative and the church has replaced Israel. So this is really about the church in a figurative kind of way. And so they go to great lengths. Uh, and by the way, uh, this is a funny thing because you have to be able to come up with this matrix of information to sort of make the figurative thing work in the Ezekiel 38 prophecy. Like you have to be a rocket scientist to follow it. I'm one who believes that biblical prophecy is written for the everyday, average, ordinary person. That you don't, in fact, I believe the whole Bible's that way. Anybody that tells you, well, unless you really read the Greek or the Hebrew, you really don't know anything about the Bible. There's college professors that say that kind of stuff to your kids when they go to school. Yeah, unless you read from the original text, you know nothing, really. Like that's kind of the, the notion, these high and mighty, lofty. If you notice, I'm a little hard sometimes on academics. Um, maybe because I'm not one. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you're not, Brett. But, but, um, but I, I do think that the academics have to be careful because, um, you know, Jesus, it was the common people who heard him gladly. And they liked Jesus. And he spoke as one having authority, even though he spoke very simply, he spoke very profoundly. And it was the scribes and the Pharisees that were the brainiacs who had this whole matrix of religion that Jesus said they were a bunch of whitewashed tombs and vipers and they were like open sepulchers, tombs, you know. And so uh, we have to be careful with this whole thing. But that's why I kind of harp a little bit on these, the, the names and the places that are listed here because there are those who will say, yeah, that's not really Russia and it's not really these things, even though history backs up who these people really are. Are you guys with me on that? That's why it's helpful to know and have a little bit of an argument uh, if, if you wanna kind of hang and say, no, these, the Magogites were the Russians and Gog is the leader of Russia and uh, those provinces, uh, of course, are, are those uh, parts of the former Soviet Union. Okay, so then you kind of read forward uh, as we keep going through Ezekiel 38. Man, I got a lot of work to do tonight. Um, uh, verse four, uh, and I will turn thee back and I will put hooks in thy jaws and I will bring thee forth and with all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers, shields, all of them handling swords. Now, in a, hopefully a little bit later, I'll talk about the swords and the weapons and the, and the words that's actually used in the original. Hebrew there. But notice so far, we're only talking about the former Soviet Union states, the Northern part, Russia, that's the only people we're talking about. That's the one that gets the hook in the jaw. The other nations we're gonna mention here in a minute are sort of tagalongs. Um, they're nations that are gonna tag along being led by Gog, who's the leader of Magog, being led by Russia, whoever the leader. If, if, if Gog Magog invasion happened tomorrow, it'd be Putin. Um, it is kind of funny if you know Putin and his politics, uh, he's the guy that I could see totally doing this. I'm not saying he is the guy who's gonna do it. And by the way, Gog is not the Antichrist. I hope you understand that. 
Some people have suggested that. That's not the case. Um, the Antichrist is gonna be very different. And God is, most of Ezekiel 38, God's talking to Gog, telling him what to do. Um, and this is a very different description of what Gog's gonna do versus what Magog's gonna do and how, uh, pardon me, what the Antichrist is gonna do and what Gog is gonna go down in this battle uh, and be buried in the mountains of Jerusalem or mountains, the hills of mountains of Israel. Um, and so uh, this, is, this is what's gonna draw this whole thing down is the Lord's gonna put hooks in the jaws of the bear of Russia up in the north and draw her down into battle against the Jews. Um, I remember, by the way, uh, do you remember in the early 1980s um, when, when the Russians attacked Afghanistan? Didn't go so well for them. And then uh, shortly after that, they all pulled out and then we attacked Afghanistan. Didn't go so well for us either. Uh, we, after 20 plus years, we're only now pulling out of Afghanistan, which is interesting. Um, and you know, the Taliban is just going nuts right now if you're following what's going on there. And man, there's some scary stuff. These translators, are you guys following some of this? These translators that were over there helping our military. Uh, we kind of left them, our government, largely, uh, not our military, but our government, uh, left these translators high and dry. And they're like, they're like running for their lives over there uh, from the Taliban who wants to execute them publicly and stuff like that. Now I heard just, was it yesterday? I think we're starting to try to rescue these guys. We should have done that before we pulled everybody out. It, like it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Whole separate issue. But, but Afghanistan, you know, it was weird when we saw the Russians go, we're like, oh, the Russians are in the Middle East. Ah, this could be the Gog Magog. I mean, that's what we were thinking back then. The Russians are in getting nearer to the Middle East when they came down to Afghanistan. But, you know, that's ancient history now. The Russians are on the very northern border of Israel today, uh, you know, setting up camp. Like this, it's, it, the, the, the excitement we had in the 1980s, knowing that the Russians could be fulfilling Ezekiel, that's, that's nothing compared to what's happening today. Um, and so the Russians have this hook in their jaw, that whether they like it or not, they're gonna come down and attack Israel. That's, that's the language used here. Now, the, list, the next part of the list are the people that are gonna be with Russia. Um, you've got Persia, uh, 1935. Uh, you know, Persia became Iran. Um, and uh, by the way, you know, the, the Iranians used to be uh, allies with Israel. Did you know that? Like they were friends of Israel back in the old days. Um, it was 1979. I talked about this briefly on some of the services on Saturday night and Sunday. Um, but, you know, it was 1979 when the Islamic Republic uh, revolution happened there in Iran that, you know, they became this crazy, wild-eyed uh, nation that wants to kill Jerusalem and Israel and Jews and saying they all deserve to die and be driven into the sea. Remember Ahmadinejad, the, the what was he, three presidents ago of Iran? He was the most vocal one of all, saying, we're gonna drive the Jews into the sea and they all deserve to die. Like, he, he didn't even pull punches with his crazy, here's a president of a major nation in the world saying, we're gonna kill Jews because they deserve it. Like, it was... It was not even, Rouhani, the next guy, was, um, was a little more moderate or so he you know, purported, but he was just as radical. And same with this new guy that's there. We talked about that in our last prophecy update. But you know, um, when, you, when you see Genesis 10.22 in the table of nations, um, you know, basically Genesis, um, uh, and by the way, uh, there's, there's that, that some of these uh, linguistic guys, Wilhelm uh, Gesenius, I was talking about earlier, he said that Elam was a province of Persia, which also stu stood at the capital city, Susa. He's, um, and of course, Ezra 4.9, Daniel 8.2. Um, uh, and, and there's parts of this that is part of Persia, but Elam 
is also important today. Know that when you come across that in the Bible, that's modern day Iran, Iran, or uh, Iran, as, it, as, as, as well as Persia. Elam, Persia, those are important places. And then we have the next ones on the list. Um, well, let's just go through this. Verse five, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, uh, with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Torgarma, the north quarters, uh, and all his bands, and many people with thee. Okay, so on Sunday I showed you maps, and, that, and that's where hopefully we cleared up who these people are for the most part. I didn't want to get into this one because it, it just sort of muddies the water a little bit, but I'm going to do it tonight. Um, there is debate on whom Gomer Pyle is. I mean Gomer. Uh, uh, there's debate on Gomer. Um, and uh, um, many scholars believe that's just part of Turkey, um, as is uh, this, this other name, Gomer and all his bands, the house of Torgarma. Uh, most say Gomer and Torgarma is what is today modern day Turkey. However, there is, there is some interesting things as it relates to um, uh, uh, Gomer. Uh, Gomer was the eldest son of Japheth, um, and he was the father of Askenaz. Now, this is where it gets, this is the Genesis 10.3, the table of nations. And this is where it gets a little tricky because while most scholars kind of associate Gomer with Turkey, um, uh, Gesenius points out that the uh, Sumerians uh, lead us to the fact that Gomer may have been the predecessors to what is today modern day Germany. Um, as it turns out. The Sumerians were known to have settled north of the Black Sea in the Rhine and the uh, Danube Valleys. So um, Gomer, they argue, uh, includes, although is not limited to, uh, what we know today as Germany. Even Josephus points out that Askenaz became what was in the Roman Empire called uh, the Reginians. Uh, and we can talk about the Polish, Czech Republic, Slovakia, East Germany. Um, all of these, uh, you might make an argument that this is who Gomer is, including East Germany and all the Slavic uh, countries up there. But um, you say, okay, well, which one is it? Don't know for sure. And it's kind of a big debate. Well, why does it matter? Um, I'm not sure it does. Here's, here's one reason why, um, if I had to say today who it is uh, and make an educated guess, I would say it's Turkey. And it has to do with these nations as they're lined up today. If Germany is part of Gomer, they're not any part of this confederation today. Um, you know, um, and I'm not saying that's why we believe Gomer is Turkey, because it fits our narrative today. Um, there's great argument of why Gomer is Turkey and, and called that. But uh, if it is Germany, then the Germans are a long way away from aligning with Russia and Iran and uh, uh, you know, Turkey. Um, and, and also, uh, one of these things is not like the other. Remember that little song? Uh, that, right now, the Confederation of Nations, as I've lined it out on Sunday, all those players in, are, are in, in place and very little has to happen to make those nations sort of fit into place. The Sudanese are, um, the thing you should know about Sudan, I mentioned this briefly on Sunday, um, Sudan is in kind of a strange place um, where they're halfway with Israel, but they're also halfway with the Arabs and this confederation of nations that we've been listening here. Um, so which side are they on? Well, they could flip in, in a moment. Uh, any, any peace treaties, any accords that have been made with Sudan um, are, are very much um, 
uh, nobody's holding their breath that the Sudanese are, are gonna land where they are. There's actually evidence that Sudan's aiding and abetting Israel's enemies, even as we speak. So there's, you know, you gotta kind of take some of these, uh, you know, nations with their promises of this and that, take it with a grain of salt. Um, a little bit like when, remember, you know, when we signed a peace treaty with Japan and then shortly thereafter, they attacked Pearl Harbor. Um, a lot of people believe Sudan can sort of turn on a dime. Uh, uh, and and uh, that's kind of the only nation that maybe is not in alignment with uh, what Ezekiel 38 says about uh, that. So uh, again, you can look at the, the Sunday's teaching on these other nations, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, uh, foot, uh, put as some of your Bibles uh, say, um, just a few other notes, um, you know, put uh, or Libya um, was the third son of Ham in Genesis 10, six. Um, and put largely refers to what we call Arabic Africa or the Northern Mediterranean uh, part of the African continent. Um, and in some Bibles it's translated as Libya, others it's put. Um, but again, what you and I need to think up of, of today as Libya, that's too narrow, okay? Uh, modern day Libya is too narrow for the biblical name uh, Libya. It includes Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, okay? So that's a pretty wide group of people in Bible times, just simply called um, uh, Libya or put, okay? You guys, are you guys okay still? Am I boring you to death? Um, okay, Targarma. Um, Targarma is clearly in verse six, uh, Turkey, that, that's for sure. Uh, the question that I was raising is Gomer and, and Targarma all talking about greater Turkey. Uh, uh, but for sure, Targarma is the easiest one. Um, if you're of Arminian uh, background, they still refer to themselves today as the house of Targarma. And uh, Targarma itself doesn't limit itself to the Armenians, but includes, uh, according to some reference, in Turkimon tribes of Central Asia. Um, uh, by the way, note, you know, CNN, uh, that uh, bastion of truth, <clears throat> um, will refer to the Turks as Arabs. However, they are not the sons of Ishmael. The Turks are descendants of Japheth. Um, it's funny who people call Arabs and stuff. Like the Iranians are not Arabs and you know, the Egyptians. Like it's really funny how everybody's kind of, oh, the bunch of those Arabs over there in that part of the world. Well, uh, a lot of people that call people Arabs are not Arabs, the descendants of Ishmael. Um, and you should probably be aware of that because in the Bible it helps you to know who are the Arabs and who are not. Um, now there's a, another little phrase here that I didn't touch on on Sunday in verse six, Gomer and his bands, the house of Targarma, uh, uh, of the north quarters. Some of your uh, Bibles, I think, say the uttermost parts of the north. How many of you guys, does anybody say that in your Bibles? Yeah, a few of you guys have that. The uttermost parts of the north. Um, and this is the way that is really rendered in the original language, the uttermost parts of the north. Um, now, um, the reason that's important is it, I just gave you kind of the, some of the historical background of why we believe these nations are what they are today. But what's really funny is if you don't wanna be a scholarly, take a scholarly approach, all you gotta do is get a globe, spin it to Israel and look at north all the way up to the other parts of the north. It's pretty much those nations. Like, you know, with the exception of the, the Libya section down in the Northern Africa region, which those are minor players anyway. The major players, Turkey, Iran, uh, Russia, they're all kind of in that northern region of that whole part of the world, and they're gonna come down from the north and attack Israel. So you don't have to be a genius to sort of figure out those nor the northern regions, you, a lot of those northern countries are just gonna come down. 
I talked about some of the, uh, the, um, the um, nations that weren't mentioned, you know, like uh, Lebanon and Syria. And I talked basically those uh, were because Iran is kind of currently controlling those nations. So it would be Iran attacking uh, and not, we wouldn't say Lebanon is attacking or Syria is attacking. Um, so let's read on here. Uh, it goes on in uh, verse um, seven. Be thou prepared. Now, who, who's the Lord talking? Ezekiel's talking the word of the Lord and he's giving it a word to Gog and Magog. Be thou prepared and prepare thyself, uh, thou and all thy company that are assembled unto thee and be thou a guard or command unto them. Um, interesting, Russia will, uh, uh, will sort of be giving arms to a lot of these nations. A lot of these nations today, Gog and Magog or Russia is equipping and preparing these nations for war. The Iranians have um, mostly Russian tanks um, and mostly Russian uh, missiles and what have you. Uh, the, the Russians have been equipping Iran for, for quite a while now. Did you know the last 10 years, uh, the Russians and the Iranians made a $10 billion military uh, weapon deal? $10 billion between the Russians and the Iranians. That's fulfilling, verse seven, preparing uh, these sort of other nations for battle. Uh, verse eight, after many days thou shalt be visited in the latter years. This is a defining, again, the timing of all this. In the latter days, the latter years, thou shalt come into the land that is brought back from the sword and is gathered out of many people uh, against the mountains of Israel, which have been always waste, but it is brought forth out of the nations and they shall dwell safely, all of them. What's happening? Well, the mountains of Israel has mostly historically been a mess. Uh, man, we could go into the history of the mountains of Israel. Remember the mountains of Israel is also called the, the West Bank, right. Um, and man, nation after nation has trounced through the mountains of Israel. We, we could talk about the Romans, the Byzantines, the Muslims, the British. <laughs> like, like there's been all kinds of nations that have gone through that region of the world. Um, but, but isn't it interesting that really in the last 20 years or so, the West Bank has been largely peaceful. Does anybody know why? Why has the West Bank become more peaceful in the last you know, decade or so? Yeah, somebody said it. It's, a, it's like Donald Trump, the wall. <laughs> uh, what wall? Uh, hey, uh, I believe in law and law spelled backward is wall. So uh, uh, yeah, well, the, the Jews are accused of building a wall that's like the, the, the wall of Berlin. You know, like, like the Jews were accused of that 10 years ago. But do you remember the Intifada Wars back in, like even when we were going to Israel, they were blowing buses up and stuff. Uh, when we were going over there, there, were, there, there was all kinds of, you know, Intifada battles and wars and stuff. But suddenly that just stopped. You wanna know why? They built a wall uh, along the West Bank uh, in Jerusalem. You, if you go to Jerusalem, there's beautiful views of the whole mountains of Israel and everything, but you see this big gray wall kind of winding through, not wrapped around any village or town, it's just a wall that kind of divides the West Bank. And if the Palestinians, and, and people call this persecution and stuff like this, but if the Palestinians wanna come in through, you know, from the West Bank into the other parts of Israel, they have to go through checkpoints and border crossings. It's like going into another country. It's like a border crossing. Uh, we did that last time. We, uh, we usually didn't spend a lot of time on the other side of the wall because it's fairly dangerous. Uh, I've been over there, uh, but the, you know, the, 
the Israelis told us, yeah, you can go tour over there with a couple of your buddies, but you need to get an armored vehicle. And I was like, okay, well, so we rented an armored vehicle and a driver and we were driving around Hebron and stuff. And um, the day before we went there, an American was killed driving through an intersection. Somebody sniped him, popped him off right in the, uh, the day before. We went to that same inter- intersection the next day uh, with our armored vehicle. I was thankful to have that little, but we got to see some places. Normally I don't take tour groups because it, it's not really safe there. But once the Jews built that wall, they've had almost zero bombings or uh, in the last decade, it's been, Jerusalem is as safe as it's ever been. I mean, you are way more safe in Jerusalem than you are Portland by far. Of course, Portland's uh, homicide is up 800% right now. So uh, bad example, uh, we're the worst in America, even worse than Chicago right now. Um, but you know, being in Jerusalem is safe, as safe as it's maybe ever been. You might even argue historically safer than any time in history. And it's largely because they've kind of secured that Jerusalem and, and they, they can't sneak these bombs in. The uh, jihadists can't do it anymore. Um, the only weapon they've, they've even had some success in causing havoc in Jerusalem is the pocket knife. Did you guys know that? Like that's the worst thing. Some, some people have used vehicles to try to drive into crowds. In Jerusalem, one of the things they have all throughout the city, it's kind of amazing. You don't even notice it uh, when you're walking around because everything's so old and ancient. But you know, every, everywhere you got these little round circles in the ground. And you're like, what are those circles? Well, they're actually these amazing, um, uh, you might call them bullards or pilings or whatever that, um, I don't know what you're supposed to call them, but they're these huge stainless steel, probably you know like 15 inches in diameter pillars that come out of the ground mechanically, uh, solid you know, steel. And they come up so that nobody can just drive a car into a crowd of people. So, so like even when our bus goes into the uh, hotel, you, you, beautiful little road, you pull in. As soon as our bus passes, if you look back behind us, these steel pillars go up behind our bus so that nobody can ram a truck or a car. And they're all over Jerusalem. They got these things that just kind of pop up. Somebody with a little remote control is like, it's actually really high tech. Jerusalem looks like this ancient city, but it's very, very high tech. Um, but I digress, I, I'm getting way off course here. Um, Jerusalem is living as peacefully and safely as they have maybe ever right now. That's interesting as it relates to this Ezekiel 38 prophecy because that's one of the characteristics of the days of the Gog-Magog invasion. Um, uh, it says in verse eight, we just read it, they'll go against the mountains of Israel, the West Bank, which have always been a waste, true, but it is brought forth out of the nations, the Jews came out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. And that's the way they're dwelling right now. This is the perfect timing for the Jews to have this description uh, be fulfilled. Look at verse nine. We talked about this on Sunday. Thou shalt ascend and come like a storm upon this land where they're dwelling safely, the Jews. And thou shalt be like a cloud to cover the land, thou and all thy bands and many people with thee. Thus saith the Lord God, it shall also come to pass that at the same time shall things come into thy mind that thou shalt think an evil thought. Isn't that interesting? Um, Gog is gonna think an evil thought. And we're about to find out what that evil thought is, but it has to do with greed and collecting a spoil from a very vulnerable people. That's their evil thought. They're gonna take spoil. So this is the thought, verse 11, thou shalt say to themselves, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. Wait a minute, Brett. You just said Jerusalem's being protected by a wall. No, the whole West Bank. <laughs> like there's, there's a huge wall going through a huge region. Um, and it's, 
and it is protecting a region, but the, the villages and the cities question, what would this have meant to uh, a person in Ezekiel's time? The idea of a whole land full of unwalled villages would be unthinkable. Every wall, you know, when did walls become uh, not a thing anymore, if you think about it? Um, there's actually a kind of a funny little history there that I don't have time to go into, but I'm gonna anyway. Um, have you ever wondered where Polak jokes came from? Because the, Pol you know, um, people from Poland and stuff, they, there's some brilliant people that came. Where did that come from of making Polak jokes? And obviously it's a, you know, racist, bigoted, you know, thing to kind of do, and hopefully you're not making Polak jokes. But where did that come from? It came from right before, well, right at World War I. Um, and it's really funny, when you study World War I, one of the things you find out is the, uh, so many nations were for, so far behind the Germans. The Germans, the German army of World War I looked very much like the German army of World War II. Their, their uniforms were almost the same. They had heavy military, giant guns, airplanes, the whole thing. Remember the, the Red Baron and all these you know, German flying aces and stuff? Um, they, they were super advanced, the Germans. The French, for example, they weren't even wearing armor. Like they, they still had the little green felt hats with the feather when they went into battle. The Germans had metal helmets like, like you know, people do today. But one of the things that World War I, uh, people realize, yeah, these don't work anymore, are walls. And the reason the, the Polish get this um, reputation and jokes is it was then that they thought they could keep the Germans out by building a little wall. Um, and, you know, and that's almost laughable because you know, the Germans could just roll through those walls like nothing. They have these huge guns, even in World War I, that just pulverized these walls with one quick blast and it was over. So there was kind of this notion that the Polish are just dumb because look, they, but it wasn't just the Polish, it was the French and everybody came ill-equipped to World War I and that's why uh, you know, millions of people were thrown into the meat grinder of World War I. It was a horrible, horrible thing. But, um, but it was, you know, think about that. It, was, it wasn't until the you know, early 1900s that walls became sort of a non-issue. Before that, cities had walls, uh, fortresses, and you know, people built up, um, even in the West, we had fortresses and you know, we built logs with pointy tops so people would have to go through a wall if you're gonna attack somebody. Like that was just the way it was. Once the airplane came into play and some of these guns and tanks that could blow through that stuff, they became insignificant. So. That's kind of an interesting thing. Ezekiel makes a real point of the unwalled villages that these nations could just roll right through. That was him seeing a vision of modern day unwalled villages. I think that's kind of an important part. It, it helps us with the timing of all this stuff. So verse 11, thou shalt say, I will go up in the land of unwalled villages. I will go to them that are at rest and dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates. Now here's what they're going to do. Two, verse 12, to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate pl uh, places that are now inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. Who are these people? The people that have been gathered are the Jews. They took the desolate land, Mark Twain writing about Israel over a hundred and something years ago. Um, now they turned that into a beautiful lush green place Verse 12, that's the people of today. That's the Israel of today. Now, if you recall, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this one. Verse 13, we talked about the protesting bystanders. Remember those guys? That's verse 13. Sheba and Dedan. Anybody remember who those people are? 
Saudi Arabia, um, and uh, the merchants of Tarshish, anybody? The United Kingdom, along with perhaps the United States, maybe because it says with all there or all the young lions. Um, does anybody know what the main animal symbol of England is? The lion, they have, a, they have three actually, but the lion is their main one. Um, it is kind of funny that it's talking about the young lions. By the way, I didn't talk about this on Sunday. Some people argue that the young lions of Tarshish are some of the um, uh, nations that, you know, the British, they, they were all over the world, you know, uh, you know, controlling all kinds of nations and places. Some argue that it will be those nations or some of them that the Brits had. Uh, and we can talk about India, we can talk about uh, South Africa or, you know, different places. The Brits were everywhere uh, at one time or another. Um, but but most, most Bible eschatology people wonder, <clears throat> are the young lions actually America? <clears throat> kind of a cryptic me mention of the United States. The young lions thereof shall say unto thee, art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to take a great spoil? So that's what the protesting bystanders are gonna say. Uh, kind of interesting. We looked at that on Sunday. Therefore, son of man, Oh, by the way, just a reminder, those protesting bystander nations are perfectly postured to be just that. Uh, they're the kind of nations, including the United States, that we would do at this point, uh, particularly with this administration, it would be very normal to do nothing about that if that happened, uh, if you know the, the, the way this administration tends to roll. Therefore, verse 14, son of man, prophesy and say unto Gog, thus saith the Lord God, in that day when my people in Israel dwell safely, um, thou, uh, shalt thou not know it? Um, won't you know when they're dwelling safely? Uh, what's another reason? I told you one of the reasons Israel's dwelling safely in their land, even though they're hated by other nations. What's another reason the Jews are largely dwelling safely in their land? Anybody? Huh? Iron Dome. Uh, technology is amazing. Have you guys looked it up on YouTube? Uh, look up on YouTube the Iron Dome system at work. You know, and, and you can see these, these missiles just, um, just, you know, a few months ago, uh, you know, 4,000 rockets were fired over the borders in Israel and 95% of them, they shot down with Iron Dome and they didn't even hit the ground. Some of them they let hit the ground because it, they knew they were gonna land in a field and it wouldn't cause any real problem. Um, there were a few that got through more than normal in this last skirmish that was a few months back. Um, and even killed a few Jews, uh, which was rare. Uh, but, but it was largely because of the, they say that maybe they were a little overwhelmed with 4,000 rockets. Um, one day, I think there was 400 rockets all shot at like one time or something. And it kind of overwhelmed the system a little bit. But um, that, that, that's another reason, not only the wall, but the Iron Dome system, the Israeli defense forces are very high tech and they're living safely in Israel even though they're surrounded by enemies. That, that's an amazing thing that's fulfilled here, verse 14. And speaking to Gog, verse 15, thou shalt come from the place of the, uh, out of the north parts, thou and many people with thee, uh, all of them riding upon horses, a great company and a mighty army. Okay, let me do a little word study here for a second uh, because we're talking about horses and armies and stuff like that. And, and when you, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, when you come across the words bows and arrows and swords and horses and stuff, you're like, how could that be describing modern day warfare? Well, there are Hebrew words for bows, arrows, horses, and, um, and swords. 
But, um, but the words that are used were very carefully selected by Ezekiel to not say those words. Uh, let me just give you a quick rundown. The word horse here is the word sus in Hebrew, uh, where it says they'll be coming on horses, riding upon horses. Sus is the Hebrew word. Sus is translated as leaper, a leaper, something that leaps, or sometimes translated as something that flies. Um, uh, as a bird flies quickly through the air. Um, a swift bird, it's not just any bird, a fast bird is a Seuss. In fact, Jeremiah uses the word Seuss to talk about a swift flying bird. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing that he doesn't say you're coming on horse, it's saying you'll be riding on swift things uh, that, that leap or go quickly, rapidly over land. Um, that's the word for horse here. So um, the King James people are the ones who put in the word horse. And then later translators came in and said horse, because of course, they're riding upon a leaper that's fast, it's gotta be a horse. Uh, because in 1611, they didn't have tanks or vehicles or drones or any of that stuff. So they just said horse. Bad translation, actually. The word sus. Uh, the word for bow is kishet, which means launcher. Something that launches something else. It may not be a bow and arrow, it's something that launches something, is the kishet. And also the arrow is katis, which means piercer, something that pierces. Sometimes it's used even as like a thunderbolt, talking about how a thunderbolt goes through something. Is the, the Hebrews use that word katis. Um, it could be translated today as a sharp piercing missile even, uh, would be called a katis. Um, the word sword in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is karev, which can mean any destroying instrument of weapon, a weapon that destroys. It's a very uh, open term talking about destructive weapons. And that's the word karev. Are you guys with me on this? I wanted you to see that these words when we come across them, uh, it, you know, some people have tried to argue, well, the Russians are gonna come down riding horses and shooting bows and arrows. Um, probably not. Uh, they're gonna be using missiles and planes and tanks and stuff like that. Uh, um, but uh, I wouldn't really wanna make that <laughs> argument. Uh, but, you know, um, you know, like, like when we come to uh, like verse, chapter 39, verse three, here in a minute, it says, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and I will cause thy arrows to fall out of the right hand. You could read it in the Hebrew, I will smite thy launchers out of thy left hand and cause thy missiles to fall out of your right hand. Like it could read that way if, if you put it more in modern day vernacular. So don't get stump, stumped by this riding of horses in verse 15. Verse 16, and thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land. Um, it shall be in the latter days. When's this gonna happen? In the latter days, that's important. And I will bring thee against my land. Again, the amillennialists said, no, 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 this happened in history. <clears throat> that's not an honest uh, interpretation of the Hebrew word for latter days. The latter days means the end of time. And he says, I will bring thee against my land and the heathen may know me when I shall be sanctified in thee, O Gog, before their eyes. Now notice verse 17, this is an interesting one, verse 17. Thus saith the Lord God, art thou he of whom I have spoken in old time by my servants, the prophets of Israel, which prophesied in those days many years that I would bring thee against them? Here the Lord is rhetorically saying, are you the ones, Gog and Magog? The answer is yes. Are you the ones that, you know, all of this was foretold by my servant, the prophet, Ezekiel? See, it's almost like Ezekiel's writing something here for the future so that when the Gog and Magog people read this, they go, what, you mean this is what Ezekiel was talking about? He's talking about us? 
That, that's funny that that's built into this prophecy, that it was the prophets of old that spoke of things that were gonna happen at the end of the world. And when the Gogites, the Magogites read it, they'll say, wow, this is, this is about us. And Ezekiel was talking about us. Are you, are you guys with me on that? I hope I didn't lose you on that one. Verse 18, um, this speaks of God's you know, horrible, terrible judgment during this battle. It's not just um, weapons and war, it's, it's cataclysmic events, verse 18. It shall come to pass at the same time when Gog shall come against the land of Israel, saith the Lord God, that my fury shall come up in my face. Does anybody wanna be a part of that? God's fury coming up in his face. That just sounds horrifying to me. Uh, I'm not sure what that means, but um, I don't know about that. That sounds horrible. And he says, four, verse 19, in my jealousy and in my fire of my wrath, have I spoken surely in that day, when, what day when the Gogites and the Confederation of Nations attack Israel? In that day, there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. That's an earthquake probably uh, talked about there. So that the fishes of the sea and the fowls of heaven and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence and the mountain shall be thrown down and the steep places shall fall and every wall shall fall to the ground. Does that sound like an earthquake you wanna be here on the earth for? Again, this isn't a local thing like the amillennialists try to explain uh, or the preterists saying, oh, it's just a little local skirmish that happened back in whatever. No, this is a global shaking of the earth. It's gonna be the big one. Seismologists have been predicting this for decades that the plate tectonics are, you know, they're charged right now with tension uh, that's being built up. And they're, they're worried that, that one day some of those plate tectonics are gonna just finally give way, it's gonna shake the whole earth. Um, and uh, they're worried about that one. Uh, you know, the Ring of Fire in the Pacific Rim, you know, it's the San Andreas Fault. You know, they, they always think that up here in Oregon, there's gonna be a big one. You know, they've always talked about that. Well, the Bible says there is gonna be a global earthquake in the last days, not just here, but even the book of Revelation sort of uh, talks about a great earthquake during the tribulation period, which could be the same earthquake because this, as you guys know from Sunday, this could be during the tribulation when some of this is uh, finishing up. Well, verse 21, I will call out for a sword against him throughout all my mountains, saith the Lord God, every man's sword shall be against his brother. And I will plead against him with pestilence and with blood, and I will rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people that are with him an overflowing rain and great hailstones, fire and brimstone. Um, the question is about all this, is this old school fire and brimstone or new school fire, fire and brimstone? What do you mean? Well, is it like Sodom and Gomorrah or is it like fire and brimstone from weaponry, modern weapon? I don't know the answer to that. But either way, God's gonna make it happen one way or the other. Um, uh, by the way, the Bible says in the tribulation period, there's gonna be hailstones that are gonna be bigger than 100 pounds a piece. Can you imagine a 100 pound hailstone hitting your car? Uh, man, uh, or your garage for that matter. You could have your car parked in the garage and it'll still pound your car uh, with a hundred pound hailstone falling from the sky. Like that's gonna crush everything. And it says here that all the walls will be crushed. Thus, verse 23, will I magnify myself and sanctify myself, set myself apart from everyone else. Um, I will be known in the eyes of many nations and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, we're not done yet. Don't pack it up. We gotta get 39 also. Uh, <laughs> It's way too slow in chapter 38. But we have covered a good portion of 39 on, on Saturday and Sunday. 
Uh, therefore, verse one, thou son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus saith Lord God, behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn thee back and leave but the sixth part of thee and will cause thee to come up from the north parts and will bring thee up on the mountains of Israel. So five-sixths of this army will be destroyed um, on the mountains of Israel. And verse three, I will smite thy bow out of thy left hand and will cause thine arrows to fall out of the right hand. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee. And I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Thou shalt fall upon the open field for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and I will set, send a fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles and they shall know that I am the Lord. Now, verse six should give pause uh, to everyone else in the world. It's not just gonna be the mountains of Israel that, that, that's gonna feel this. That we've already got the earthquake that's sort of global where it says every man and all the fishes of the sea and every, the mountains are gonna be falling. Like this is a big deal. But here, verse six says, I will, dwell, uh, I will send fire on Magog, but all them that dwell carelessly in the isles. Oh no, the poor Hawaiians, you know. Uh, is that what it's talking about? The word isles there um, is better translated coastlands or countries. Um, oftentimes the King James interprets the Hebrew to the islands when it should be interpreted to the nations or even the coasts of a nation, you know, which, which could be any, uh, you know, uh, continent. But the, the, again, verse six sort of implies more of a global catastrophe that's associated with this. Verse seven, so I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Did you guys see, um, what was it? You know, they, uh, they had this big Jesus statue somewhere in the, and holding, you know, it's a statue of Jesus, kind of like the one in Rio, but smaller. And then they, they want to string this sign that says, you know, God loves abortion. Um, and and you, you see stuff like that today, and you just see the mockery. Did you see in Canada, they're just burning churches down left and right in Canada. Um, there's like 60 something churches that have been burned to the ground in Canada lately. Like there's this horrible thing going on in Canada. They're arresting pas uh, pastors uh, that are you know, preaching the word. And you know, uh, where Canada is, I think sometimes I think the United States tends to follow uh, in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, the Lord says, man, you, you know, no longer will the heathen, you know, sort of mock my name, but they will know that I am Jehovah. The, the, this is gonna be the end result. Those people that pur purposely make fun of Jesus and God and faith. Verse eight, behold, it has come and it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken and they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth and shall set on fire and burn the weapons both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire seven years. This is again a timing thing. The seven years I think will be during the tribulation period where they'll burn this. So that's why the Gog-Magog invasion happens right at the, uh, the beginning of the tribulation, shortly around where the rapture of the church is gonna happen. Um, and they're gonna burn these weapons. By the way, the Russians have a lot of weapons made out of this sort of resin plastic stuff that's super hot or super uh, tough. Uh, it's like stronger than metal. Um, but it also at super, super high temperatures can burn, which is kind of an interesting thing. 
Um, so this will burn for seven years, verse 10, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any out of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire. They shall spoil those that spoil them and rob those that rob them, saith Lord God. Uh, really quickly, the language of this is interesting. It's almost like the Jews are gonna somehow harness the heat from the burning to make energy for their nation. Sounds very Jewish, doesn't it? Um, they're like, oh wow, look at all this energy we have. Some believe that they're gonna take the nuclear stuff of the Russians and figure out how to harness their nuclear power to bring power uh, down to Israel. So uh, I wouldn't you know, die on that battlefield, but it is an interesting suggestion and it's kind of what it's said there in verse 10. Verse 11, and I will, uh, it shall come to pass in that day that I will give uh, unto Gog a place where uh, there are graves in, in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and it shall stop the noses of the passengers and there shall they uh, bury Gog and all his multitude and they shall call it the valley of Haman Gog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying of them and they may cleanse the land that yea, all the people of the land shall bury them and it shall be to them a renown in the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. And they shall sever out men of continual employment passing through the land to bury the passengers of those that remain upon the face of the earth to cleanse it. After the end of seven months, they shall search. Uh, they shall search. search. And verse 15, um, and the passengers that pass through the land, when any seeth a man's bone, then he shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog and also the name of the city shall be Hemona, thus saith, uh, pardon me, thus shall they cleanse the land. We talked about this on Sunday, uh, indicating radioactivity, nuclear weapon. Uh, you know, it seems that it could be uh, the, the way this goes down, the how uh, of the, you know, the attack and the Russian soldiers on the mountains of Israel, and then piles of bodies there because of a nuclear detonation. It's very possible. Uh, that that's the way it's all gonna go down. This is the way the Bible says it's gonna go down, so I believe that. Verse 17. Now, basically, verse 17 um, is gonna be talking about the feast of the predators because of all the dead bodies. It, it gets, it's a little grisly. It says, verse 17, thou, uh, and thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and every beast of the field, assemble yourselves and come and gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice <clears throat> that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice upon the mountains of Israel that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and <clears throat> drink the blood of princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, the bullocks of them, the fatlings of Bashan. And you shall eat fat until you be full and drink blood until you be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus, you shall be filled with my table with horses and chariots with mighty men and with all the men of war, saith the Lord God, and I will set my glory among the heathen and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I've executed and my hand that I have laid upon them so that the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from the, uh, that day forward. Again, verse 22, you know, we talk about the grizzly part of it, the birds picking off the flesh of the soldiers from the Gog Magog thing, but verse 22 also very much clearly gives us a time frame of all this. This is all gonna happen so that the, the Jews, Israel, will know that I'm the Lord their God from that day forward. We know that happens af after the rapture of the church, during the tribulation period. So this gives us the timing of this. There's no other time when the Jews will all wake up and see that the Lord is God and all of them will get it. 
That's, that's, that verse 22 locks us into kind of a, a time frame here. Verse 23, and the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity um, for their iniquity because they transpassed uh, against me. Therefore hid I my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So they all fell by the sword. And that, that, that's true. That happened in the Holocaust and many other times in history. Verse 24, according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions have I done unto them and hid my face from them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, now will I bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. And after that, they have borne their shame, all their trespasses, whereby they have trespassed against me when they have dwelt safely in their land and none made them afraid. When I have brought them again from the people, gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations." Then shall they know. And verse 28 and 29 here, this is the reason for the whole enchilada. The whole Gog, Magog invasion, all this stuff is so that Israel, verse 28, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them into their own land, have left none of them anymore there. Neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I have poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. You know, Isaiah 46.10 tells us this. The Lord is the one, he says, I am the one declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. The Lord is the only one in all the cosmos that knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He, he, he does whatever he wants to. And he says, I will do whatever my pleasure is. And this is kind of the way he ends this chapter by saying, I'm gonna do this because I wanna do it. And everybody's gonna know that I am the Lord. And, and of all the people that are gonna know that I'm the Lord, it'll be Israel. The world will know it in kind of a, a horrifying way. They're gonna find out the hard way. The Jews are gonna find out as God is gonna rescue them from this Gog-Magog invasion and then ultimately rescue them from Antichrist who will be coming right about that same time and hate the Jews and make war against the Jews, ultimately leading up to the final battle, Armageddon where Christ returns and inter intervenes for the Jews. And then that's when they will um, kind of, you know, live happily ever after at that point, after the second coming of Christ. Uh, uh, and we will be there as well. So there you have it. Uh, I know that's a, a bit of a brain full of Ezekiel 38, 39, uh, but I uh, hope we, we uh, get getting a little more of a handle on it. And you say, why is that important? What makes that different than any of the other prophecies? It's happening in our lifetime. The stuff that we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's just so amazing to me how the, the, the elements are just continually lining up. Now, what if I'm wrong about that? What if uh, this isn't the lining up of Ezekiel 38 and it's just like a false alarm? Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. Um, but I think not probable. <laughs> I think it is possible. You know, they thought Hitler was the Antichrist back in you know, World War II. Um, and you could, you could see why they thought that. You know what I mean? Like there was some real hatred for the Jews, just like the Antichrist was gonna hate the Jews. Like you could have made a pretty good argument. Um, but the Bible, as it turns out, it okay, it's okay with that kind of thinking. Because remember, if you recall, all these end times things are compared to a woman in travail with child. Both uh, Jesus and, uh, and others in the Bible, as far as eschatology, compares 
it like childbirth. And when you are expecting a baby and you're getting closer to the baby, the, the, the contractions start happening and they get more intense and more frequent. And then as they get more intense and more frequent, eventually say, you know, the doctor says, okay, you know, they're two minutes apart. Oh man, you should have been on the way to the hospital. You gotta get over here because they know the babies are coming. You know, and so we've been watching through history and, and I'd say, you know, World War II was a big giant contraction that very much looked like the baby was a coming. Uh, and, uh, and, and then there's other little contractions. We've seen cataclysmic events and all the signs that Jesus talked about. Jesus said, like a woman in travail and labor pain, same as the end of the times. And, and so we're seeing some of the, you know, it looks like this could be the one that brings the baby, if you would, this contraction. Um, but if it's not, it just goes down as another big contraction and we should be ready for the next one. Um, but what if it doesn't happen in your lifetime? Don't, I, I think it will. But if it doesn't, uh, I'm just gonna keep living the same either way. The Lord wants you and me to live with that, thinking that, man, the Lord could come today. Uh, the eminence of his return is how the Christian is supposed to live. Uh, you know, thinking, man, today could be the day of the rapture of the church and we should live accordingly. And then we're in good company with Peter and Paul and all the New Testament believers. They, they were thinking the Lord could come in their lifetime. Uh, but he didn't, but they lived accordingly. Same with us. It's not embarrassing if this stuff doesn't happen. Uh, we're just seeing the signs of the times unfolding. Um, and I think we're living in very exciting times to be a Christian. Um, even if things get really bad, you know, some people say, Brett, you just wanna be raptured to get out of the trouble. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Um, Jesus said, you know, in Luke, he said, pray that you be counted worthy to escape all these things. And then he talks about the tribulation period. Uh, yeah, I wanna escape. But I also am not uh, stupid. Uh, all throughout history, there's been times where Christians have been persecuted horribly. And uh, could I see a lot of that coming before the tribulation period? Yeah. Will it be as bad as the tribulation period? No. The tribulation period will be the worst time in the history of the world. Um, the Bible's clear on that. Jesus said that. Um, but the Holocaust, that was horrible. That could happen again. You know, churches burning down in Canada, that could happen here. And Christianity being, uh, you know, illegalized. Uh, can, you, can you imagine if 20 years ago, you and I would have seen the news of today? Uh, I think we would have been, no way, that's not happening in America. You know, liberty, land of the free, home of the brave, come on. But uh, we're seeing things change really quickly. And I could see things get pretty bad. Uh, I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom. I do think that we as Christians need to have game on. We shouldn't be these little uh, uh, fluffy Christians that are all about you know, community and all this stuff. That's all dumb. We need to be about the Bible. We need to be about the Bible. We need about the word of God. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, watching and waiting, being vigilant and sober, loving one another, sharing the gospel. Like our job is really clear uh, no matter what happens. Uh, but I, I think the church is distracted with a lot of stupid things. Uh, we have to watch out for that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how, how I thank you for your word. It's such a good reminder uh, that, that we need to be uh, like these end times people of the Bible. Noah, who was a faithful man, who was righteous among his generations. Lord, I pray that we'd be like Noah or, or even like Daniel, who was living in end times kind of place where he and his people were dragged off into captivity, but faithful still walking with you and loving you and seeking your face. Lord, I pray that in these days we're living that we would be good at just trusting you, following after you. Lord, being students of your word and that we'd see good fruit in our lives. 
So we pray your blessing now as we go our way on this Wednesday evening. In Jesus' name, amen.